It's Friday, October 30th. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, what to expect when you're electing. For this week's Tough Questions segment, we talk to our CEO, Suzanne Nossel, about what she thinks we need to look out for in the days ahead. Plus, we discuss Pen America's decision to honor the young woman who filmed the murder of George Floyd, and how a killing in France reflects the powder keg nature of our current moment. Then Kevin Young, incoming director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture and editor of a new book of African American poetry. I'm Stephen Fee. All that coming up on The Pen Pod. Millions of ballots have already been cast and the campaign season reaches a climax on Tuesday. Uh, Killing in Philadelphia and in France forces a reckoning on free speech and tolerance. Suzanne Nossel is CEO of PEN America. She joins me now for our weekly Tough Questions segment. Hey, Suzanne. Hi, Stephen. So uh, this is it, Suzanne. Um, We're all sort of glued to our screens. The hours are ticking by until we get to Election Day, which I guess is really the end of the campaign season more more than anything else. What should voters be watching out for in these final moments? Sure. Look, I mean, one of the things we've been saying for a while is like this may not this will be the end of voting season. It may not be the end of election season in that it may take another few days, even conceivably stretching out to another few weeks before this thing is said and done in places like Pennsylvania. We know they cannot begin to count absentee ballots until the polls have closed. And and we know there have been an overwhelming number of ballots by mail cast in many jurisdictions. So it's going to take some time for everything to be sorted out, depending on which states break where. It may be that the outcome is still in in doubt and hanging in the balance for some time. And it's going to be extremely important for people to remain patient, not to jump the gun, uh, jump to conclusions. We know that the the patterns in terms of voting preferences among in-person and by mail voters can vary. And so the fact that in-person tallies look a certain way on election night may not tell the full story. We saw this back in 2018 when the blue wave was not really manifest until days and then weeks after election night when all the votes had been counted uh, for that midterm election. So I think, yes, it's coming to a climax, but it may not be over for some weeks more. And, you know, from our perspective, we are seeing this swelling tide of disinformation about all things voting. And there's a story this morning about how election officials at the local level are becoming overwhelmed with having to deal with these phone lines lighting up with crazy questions. You know, are these ballot drop boxes fake? You know, what about those ballots I saw on social media lying in a heap in the trash? You know, all kinds of things, many of which uh, are, are false and need to be debunked. And it's taking a lot of time and energy. We've done a lot of work over the last few months training many thousands of Americans to recognize the insignia of disinformation, and that's extremely important. But we're all going to have to be on our guard. One thing I would say that's good is there really is an extraordinary array of organizations that are now in close touch and working together to respond to these reports as they surface and who bring 
a lot of tools, wide networks, uh, access to the media, et cetera, so that they can mount a forceful response in real time. But I think all of that is just going to be an overdrive over the next several days and possibly several weeks. Yeah. Well, we had some news from PEN America this week um, that we'll be honoring Darnella Frazier, who I don't think is yet a household name, but I think she should be. Uh, This is the woman who recorded the murder of George Floyd. It comes also as this week, um, another uh, person gunned down by police, this time in Philadelphia, a 27-year-old man named Walter Wallace. Um, Say a little bit about why we've decided to honor Darnella and how you know, bearing witness to these murders, as painful as it is, is an act of expression. Yeah, look, you know, we give this award each year to individuals for usually a kind of a specific act of courage in the exercise of free expression. And Darnella really stood out for us. And, you know, every time I think about it, I'm kind of really struck by this 17 year old who was out going to a store with her younger cousin. And all of a sudden she finds herself in the middle of this extraordinary scene. that was not a kind of momentary scene. The scene in Philadelphia this week as as absolutely bone chilling as it was just watching uh, Walter be gunned down. You know, it happens in a space of some seconds with George Floyd's murder, it unfolded over nearly 10 minutes. And so Darnella was there steadily, methodically, unflinchingly bearing witness to this, you know, obviously not knowing where it would go or how it might end. And in so doing, captured this footage that transformed our national debate and you know sent millions of Americans out to the streets in protest, prompted reform measures in police departments all over the country, sparked the introduction of national legislation. Like, you know, and would all that have happened if she hadn't had that quick wittedness to take action in the moment and capture this for posterity, you know, probably not. I mean, as much as the raw emotions and the motivation uh, and passion behind the campaign were there and ready to be ignited, you know, it took that video to galvanize people. And I think so many more people came into the fight just because of the unmistakable, undeniable horror and brutality of it that, you know, got people off the sidelines. So it's just an extraordinarily powerful act and, and, and just a gutsy act. I mean, if you think about, you know, surrounded by police in this, you know, really tense situation, I mean, what would it have taken for one of the police officers to look in her direction and notice she was filming and, you know, who knows what, uh, but she certainly was, exposing herself to that. And then, you know, the other pieces in the aftermath, she was on the receiving end of all sorts of, you know, really cruel criticism. You know, why didn't you intercede? Uh, You know, weren't you just out for money in capturing this? And, you know, she became the target of online harassment. And, you know, for us, it just seemed really important to stand by her and to elevate and celebrate her act of courage in doing this. I mean, you know, these these 
critiques after the fact, you know, I just find so uh, inexplicable. I mean, what was she supposed to do? You can't exactly call the police, you know, when this is, is what is unfolding at the hands of police. Um, you know, was she going to juxtapose herself in the middle of the situation? No. I mean, what she did, what she could, and that act had enormous power and consequence. And so we're really honored to have the chance to recognize her. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. And that's, uh, of course, our, our virtual gala in December 8th. Um, finally, I want to talk about um, Samuel Paty, the French school teacher who was killed after he showed uh, controversial cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad in his classroom. Uh, the killing has stirred you know, questions, obviously, about defamation of religion, how far free expression can go. Um, and also France's backlash has also caused concern among you know, people who are defending the civil liberties of Muslims in France who say that they've gone too far. You know, we obviously, uh, years ago, honored the Charlie Hebdo uh, 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 staff uh, with, our, with indeed the, the, uh, a similar award a few years ago. What's your reaction to all of this, Ben? Yeah, well, it was the same award, and we gave it to the surviving staff of Charlie Hebdo in 2015 in the wake of the murder of 12 of their colleagues at, at the hands of uh, gunmen who came in and invaded their office. Uh, so this incident, uh, you know, is an, an echo of that trauma and a really chilling act. I mean, this teacher, Samuel Paty, had taught the lesson about the Charlie Hebdo cartoons and freedom of expression. He had said to Muslim Ameri or Muslim students in his class that if they wanted to step outside class and not to see this or be part of it, uh, you know, that that was fine. You know, kind of what we would think of as a trigger warning in an American context, letting people know about something that might be upsetting and giving them the option to beg off of it. And then he came under this withering criticism from, you know, sparked by a parent from the class sort of saying that the, the, the display of these cartoons, you know, was deeply offensive. Uh, and, you know, that is, that's true. I mean, we know that these cartoons are considered profoundly offensive in Muslim circles, but, you know, unfortunately, and, and he actually, the, 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 parent was bringing an action accusing the teacher of having shown pornography because one of the cartoons depicted Muhammad naked. And, you know, I don't know what that parent had intended, you know, and, 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 and fair enough to make a complaint. But unfortunately, we're living in such a powder keg society that this, you know, young, radicalized, uh, you know, French Muslim of Russian descent who lived 60 kilometers away, just took matters into his own hands and went to the school and asked students to identify the teacher and beheaded him, you know, on a sidewalk, uh, you know, in broad daylight. And he, he was apprehended and, and, and killed in a firefight with police. But it, it just, you know, goes to show, I think, the, the kind of uh, knife's edge environment we are living in where people have uh, accepted this notion that speech can be a form of violence, that it can justify violence. Uh, and, you know, that, that ends in violence. And so I think it's been very important that certain Muslim voices in France and around the world have condemned uh, this murder 
and spoken out clearly about it as an act of terrorism. And I hope it doesn't spark a wave of anti-Muslim sentiment because we know that also can happen. And that, you know, this is the act of a single individual. And, you know, yes, we maybe have been motivated by Muslim theology, but that doesn't mean that what he did is you know, something that's embraced by all Muslims, far from it. And so we need to be very much on guard that this doesn't trigger kind of, uh, you know, a, a, another vicious backlash that only deepens these schisms. Yeah. Well, Suzanne uh, Nasla, CEO of PEN America. She's author of Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. And we'll catch you next week, of course, to talk about uh, the aftermath of Tuesday, whatever that looks like next Friday. Um, looking forward to it. Thanks, Suzanne. Uh, Oh, yeah, hard to believe it's going to be, you know, whatever. We'll see if it's really all over, but yeah. Okay. Uh, Thank you. Take care, Stephen. Early next year, Kevin Young will take on yet another day job as the director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. He'll keep his position as poetry editor at The New Yorker, and as if that weren't enough, he's out with a new book he's edited, African American Poetry, 250 Years of Struggle and Song. The multi-talented, multi-hatted Kevin Young joins me now. Hey, Kevin. Hey, how are you? I'm doing all right. So um, congratulations uh, on the directorship at the museum. Um, how, how do the worlds of poetry and museums intersect for you? I mean, they overlap quite a bit. I was thinking about uh, this as I have to almost daily because to me, one of the exciting things about the museum is the way it's able to tell the story of African-American culture and experience and history uh, and make it uh, what it is, which is central to the American experience. And, you know, that telling of a story is may seem far from poetry, but it's what I do a lot in my own work, um, thinking about those lyric moments and telling those stories uh, in my prose about African-American culture and life. Uh, and to me, that storytelling is really at the heart of a really good museum. And uh, the National Museum especially has done such a beautiful job and, you know, it's not just a story. It's also these lyric moments, these moments of transcendence, I think, that it captures really beautifully uh, from seeing a photograph of Harriet Tubman, one of the first photographs known of her, uh, which is beautiful. And I happen to have seen it in a separate context before. And just to hold the book that this uh, photograph was in is incredible. And now anyone who goes to the museum can see it up close and you know making it available to everyone i think is really part of the specialness of the museum and poetry to me is for everyone too it it like the museum is uh free uh certainly you should support your local poets and local book <laughs> but there's a way in which you know poetry we carry it in our bodies and the experience of the museum whether it's online or now you can go in person they have time tickets and safe entry and all that um you know i think really has a physical component to it there's a way in which the stories that african-americans tell are ones we've carried in our bodies and poetry does much the same yeah i mean and you'll be taking on this role at the museum as its, its second leader and its, you know, its young history. Uh, but you join in the midst of this um, incredible explosion of activism, especially against 
anti-Black violence, also amid a pandemic. How do you plan on embracing those challenges? Well, the museum is young in uh, being open, but it's not young in conception. Um, mm. It's like a century old in that way. And it, the Schomburg, too, where I'm currently director, is uh, a century old, uh, almost. It's 95 years old, too. And in a way, this uh, wish to understand and comprehend and uh, collaborate with and contribute to Black culture uh is much longer than that, but I think its institutionalization um, is a century in the making, uh, both at Schomburg and at the museum in a certain sense. And I, I think that they have shared missions in that way. And I think what we're facing uh, is facing all of us. We're all facing and affected by these twin pandemics of racism and COVID. And uh, the museum, I think, has a really good opportunity to chronicle that? And how do we do that uh, is one of the questions I think facing us. And some of it is uh, through collecting some of the objects, what they're already doing around the protests. Uh, but a lot of it is telling that story of this past summer uh, and into this fall. But also, I think, contextualizing it and what the museum does so well, it shows you that this doesn't come out of nowhere, that there is centuries of activism and resistance uh, and also of oppression and difficulty. Uh, and those kind of forces uh, are come to bear more recently, but they have a long context in history. And I, that continuity is what I think the museum can help us understand and help us deepen our understandings of each other. Well, you know, I mean, on that continuity side, you know, it, it makes me think of obviously this book. I mean, you know, that, that this this collection is is, you know, a multi-century, multi-vocal epic. Um, you know, as an editor, how do you how do you curate and, and craft that kind of collection that spans such a broad era of history and a broad a broad a broad moment of, of life for so many people? I mean, in the same way that maybe a museum faces that same challenge. Well, I think it's a challenge and an opportunity. You know, um, the hardest thing about doing African-American poetry, 250 years of struggle and song, was really uh, making it <laughs> as short as it is, even though it's a thousand pages. You know, it could have been twice as long. And I think uh, at one point it probably was. Um, and so cutting it and, and revising was part of the process. But it was also a process of going out and searching and, and discovery and what I want readers to come to the book with is, is that same sense. There's poets they'll know, uh, I think, poets like Langston Hughes and Gwendolyn Brooks who uh, are taught often, but we have to remember they weren't always taught and they weren't always seen as central as they, I hope, are now. But at the same time, there's lots of discoveries. There's poets like Fenton Johnson, who's one of my favorites, who wrote prose poems in the teens, 19 teens, that is. And, and so here we have a poet who's, who's thinking about the blues and thinking about that blues aesthetic and thinking about poetic form and experiment and all these things that I think speak to now. His dissatisfactions, he has a famous poem, uh, famous for poets, um, called <laughs> Tired, that's sometimes anthologized. But I want to include uh, all of the prose poems that are known, he is known to have written. Unfortunately, there was a fire and he lost uh, that whole manuscript. So the only things that existed were ones he published. But I don't know of them appearing in a century, and here they are all together. And so I want readers to discover that uh, in the ways that the writers intended. We have a lot of longer poems that we tried to include, if not the whole of them, then the significant excerpts. And I think showing the kind of epic struggle and the epic song of African-Americans was the goal of the anthology. And indeed, you're right, that's a goal of the museum, too, is to show that American epic, which I think is very much an African-American epic. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and, and it's interesting. I mean, we've talked to so many authors for this podcast and, and, and so many say that they've turned to poetry in the last, you know, now seven months of this oh, great, pandemic. Yeah. And, and I wonder why you think that is. Well, I think that uh, poetry offers uh, a response and a humane response and a one that is our humanity up front. It's our love of language, our our need for connection, but also it dances with silence in a way. And and not all art forms do that. Certainly, uh, Twitter don't. And you know, right. te- television, which I love, you know, doesn't provide you that same ability to think, reflect, meditate, but also music, you know, it provides a music Mm -hmm. poetry and the music of the moment. I think poetry addresses much better than any other art form. Uh, And as the poetry editor of the New Yorker, I see it every day, every week, and we're able to have someone write a poem about George Floyd and the week after he's murdered to print it, you know, and I think that that immediacy of poetry is really coming across and that that's true in whatever people are writing about. I think there's poems we published that I took well before uh, quarantine that speak exactly to the moment. And I think that's because, you know, on one hand, poets, I think, are kind of prescient and sort of prophetic at times. But I also think that writing about things deeply and honestly means they last beyond that moment. And poetry is that unique place where eternity and the immediate moment meet. And they're able to, uh, poems, to carry that toward the future. And it's one of the special things when you read a poem by, say, Langston Hughes or Brooks, you're, you're transported in time. And I often say that poems are the best form of transport. They uh, change us, they move us, and they move us across time and space. And suddenly for that moment of the poem, you are that lyric eye, you're that somebody else, uh, and you're in someone else's shoes. And very little else does that, and nothing does it the same way, or I would say as well as poetry does. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, you've, you've, you've touched on this idea of poetry is transportable and, and, and reactive to its moment um, and, and blending that into your, your sort of your, your career and, and, and what comes next with the museum. Um, you know, how do you think the museum is going to need to, I mean, even with time ticketing, you know, is going to need to reckon with distance and social distance and maybe not welcoming as many people through its doors as it usually could. Um, you know, how, how will you expand its mission outside of the, the physical walls? Well, I think it's doing a good job of of uh, stepping into this cautiously, carefully, but also uh, thoughtfully. And, uh, you know, that's part of what uh, the Smithsonian has done. And they're doing it very uh, in a way that I think is really smart. And, you know, it, it has to be distanced. But we people are also in need of this culture that is there for them. And so uh, I think it's something I think about in my current role, too. You know, um, how do we provide access to people in this moment? And there's ways we're doing it electronically and digitally. And at the museum, they've always been doing that digitally. Uh, uh, Secretary Lonnie Bunch, who ran the museum, is now the secretary of the Smithsonian, uh, says, you know, it was a digital museum of long before it was a physical one. It was right. online in a place that people could get that information and see those objects and connect uh, the stories to their own stories. 
And I think that's really important. Um, and I see that continuing. I don't think we're going to end up in a place where the the digital and the virtual, especially around events, say, is going to go away. Even if tomorrow we were able to open and there was vaccines and everyone was safe, I think we'd still have this digital world that I we realize now uh, means that someone can be several continents, an ocean away and tune into your event. And so I think that uh, broad tent, uh, that broad access is here to stay. Uh, it's something the Smithsonian does so well and the National Museum especially. And so I'm really excited to, to continue that and see what we can do. And some of it we don't totally know yet. I know I didn't know what Zoom was uh, seven months ago. <laughs> and um, so there's, there's, there's things that we can make, do, and connect with each other uh, and I think the important thing is people are looking for human connection, you know, and right. um, some of that times that's in person. There isn't a substitute for that, but there is an amplification of what we do online and digitally. And I think I'm really interested in especially the black digital future, but also the digital present um, and African-American contributions to that are wide and many. Uh, let's figure out how we can archive those, continue those and amplify those too. Absolutely. Well, and lastly, what are you uh, reading right now? You know, I, I have uh, a bunch of things I'm reading for a project I'm working on, but they're, you know, as a book nut, a collector, <laughs> whatever, uh, it's sort of, I read something here, something there. The books I'm looking forward to reading, I'm looking forward to reading Eddie Glaude's book on James Baldwin, Begin Again. Uh, it's sitting right here next to me. Um, and it, a lot of it was conducted at the Schomburg Center where Baldwin's papers are. So that's sort of next on my outside of what I'm writing reading list. But whenever I do say, oh, this is outside, I suddenly end up having to think about it and write about it. And so I'm excited to hear uh, Glaude's take on everything. Absolutely. Well, Kevin Young is editor of African American Poetry, 250 Years of Struggle and Song. He becomes the second director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture in January. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And that's our episode for Friday, October 30th. Keep an eye on your podcast feed this weekend. We'll have more essays from our We Will Emerge series as we count the hours to Election Day. Head over to Penn.org where you can read all of those pieces. Plus, arm yourself with facts at our What to Expect webpage at Penn.org slash What to Expect. I'm Stephen Fee for Penn America. This is the Penn Pod. Go vote. Have a great weekend.